Thank you, uh, worship team, and hello, everyone. It is wonderful to see you here. And for those watching online, thank you for joining us. I'm going to invite you, if you have a Bible or device, to turn to Exodus chapter 7. We'll be there in just a few moments. We are continuing in our series through the second book of the Bible. And again, Exodus does not start with in the beginning or once upon a time. Exodus starts in the middle of a story. It is a sequel, really, to the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and that God, throughout his word, the Bible, reveals not only himself to us, but his plan for us. It's the plan of salvation. And God's plan of salvation in the book of Genesis, we find uh, it's going to come through the line of Abraham. And where we pick it up in Exodus, 400 years, the descendants of Abraham, the Hebrews, the Israelites, the Jews, have been oppressed under the different pharaohs of Egypt. They've been enslaved, been mistreated, and uh, so they are uh, without any hope. Well, that God is going to use Moses to bring them out of Egypt, out of their slavery, so that they can worship God. And so today where we pick it up, Moses and his brother Aaron are going to appear before Pharaoh, the same Pharaoh that they appeared to previously, who said to them, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh understands that he needs these Hebrew slaves, and he's working them into the ground. He needs them to make bricks to build his projects. If you look at Egypt, very powerful nation at one time. They need people to do the slave work, the grunt work. And so I'm not letting them go. His heart is resistant. It's stubborn. He's obstinate towards this Lord. And so we're going to see God through chapter 7 through 11 this morning. We're going to see him systematically dismantle and discredit the gods of Egypt, so that they can know and the Israelites know that he is the last God standing. And so that the Israelites and any willing Egypt, Egyptians, that they can worship the true God, the living God. Again, the book of Exodus and this event, which is a major event in the Bible, it foreshadows or points to the greatest event, when Jesus died on a cross and rose again the third day. And if you're a follower of Jesus today, you're a Christian, God has rescued you out of sin, the land of sin, not so that you can continue to worship the many gods of the land, but so that you can worship the true God. You can serve the true God. You can live for the true God. And so today, maybe it's a challenge to you. Maybe it's a reminder to you of your purpose in life. You're not living for yourself. You're living for the God that rescued you. And then if you are here and you happen uh, not to be in a relationship with God, you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, uh, Scripture says that there's coming a day 
when Jesus will be the last God standing. And today is your day to put your faith in him. So Exodus chapter 7, we're going to do a cursory kind of overview of the 10 different plagues. And before we get to that, uh, we're going to look at the context uh, for these 10 plagues. So chapter 7, let's begin in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. Moses, you're representing me before Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh was one of many gods in Egypt. They had many gods. He was considered a god as well. You're going to represent me before Pharaoh and your brother Aaron. Yes, you have told me you have faltering lips. Your brother Aaron will be the spokesman. Verse 3, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Let my people go. Pharaoh is going to say, no, he's going to refuse. I will show my power through my signs and wonders my acts of judgment, and then not only the Hebrew people, the Israelites, but the Egyptians will know that I am Lord. So Moses here gets his marching orders from God again. He got them previously. He's to go to Pharaoh. Again, Pharaoh's not going to listen uh, to uh, Moses. Um, why isn't he? Because his heart is hard. Now, when you read the Bible, when we read the Bible, uh, we read it in the plain sense. And most of the time, the, the plain sense makes sense. You're like, yes, I understand that, I understand that. But once in a while, as you read the Bible, there are things that don't make sense. There are theological challenges. They raise theological questions. And here in this passage, we have a, a, a few. One is, wait a second, who's hardening Pharaoh's heart? Is God hardening Pharaoh's heart? I thought God couldn't sin. God can't sin. We find in the story that God hardens Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardens Pharaoh's heart. Well, who is it that hardens his heart? Both. God's sovereignty, human responsibility. How the two work together, we will not understand this side of eternity. But they do intersect. Now, we do know that God cannot sin, but he can direct sin. So let me give you an example that would maybe better explain the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Paul, uh, 1,500 years after this event, Paul would write in Romans chapter 1 that there are people who exchange the truth of God for a lie, that they worship and serve created things rather than their creator who is forever praised, amen. And we read in that passage that Paul says, and God gives them over, God gives them over, in a sense, to the desires of their heart. With Pharaoh, God's giving him over to the full measure of his stubborn heart. 
that God is going to use Pharaoh's stubborn heart for his own purposes. So, uh, again, the question is, uh, which one? It's both. Now, with that, notice, too, that God is going to show his power through his signs and wonders and his hand. Is that what's going to take place with these plagues is supernatural. It's not natural. Now, there are some, uh, because this event has been studied uh, much over the years, and there's some uh, people and some scientists who hold that these different plagues, you know, of the, the uh, Nile uh, water turning to blood and the fleas and all of these things, that they uh, were caused by natural causes. Uh, so, for example, let me just give you a couple here before we move on. Um, science, some scientists believe that 3,500 years ago, so back at the time that this took place, there was global warming. Can you imagine that? Global warming. And the Nile dried up, and when the Nile dried up, it became very sludgy, and with that, a certain algae was, um, uh, it multiplied, multiplied at a great speed. It was called the burgundy blood algae. And so it multiplied at a great speed with the warm temperatures, and then when uh, this toxic algae died, it stained the water red. So that's how you get the, the red, the blood in the Nile. And then with that, because of the, the weather and this toxic algae, it caused stress on the frogs. And we know that frogs reproduce when they're stressed. So lots of frogs are reproduced. And then the frogs die. And then there's fleas and, and, and um, gnats. And so it goes on and on. Um, and then another kind of theory that's kind of connected to that is 400 miles away from the land of Egypt over on the island of Santorini, the Greek island, uh, there was a volcano, Thera, and, uh, and it uh, put a lot of ash into the atmosphere, and, and uh, the livestock died and boils on people and all that. And then, but what about the, I just really like this one, what about the um, firstborn that die? What about that? How do you explain that plague? Here's what some of them say. The combination of the rain and darkness in the warm desert would have produced the fungus and mold on their grains they made bread with. Back in those days, the firstborn was always fed first, so would have been the first to die of food poisoning. I love that. How many of you firstborn males like me? Okay, maybe sometimes it's not best to eat first, right? Let somebody else go first, right? Okay. Trying to explain the supernatural with the natural. Somebody's like, oh, that kind of is a little bit silly. What about the origin of the universe, the origin of life? What about the origin of life? Let's look at that. Right? We would say the most plausible explanation as you study all the facts is that it was a supernatural cause, that it wasn't natural because matter is not eternal. Uh, Francis Crick. So let me just give you another example of this, trying to explain away the supernatural. Uh, Francis Crick, Dr. Francis Crick, um, some of you would know he is the co-discoverer of the DNA double helix. Uh, he uh, won the Nobel Prize as a scientist. And um, in his studies with the, light, with the origin of life and life, he, he knew that life could not evolve from non-living chemicals under any conditions. And he writes that it appears like it's a miracle, but he's an atheist 
So he can't believe in a miracle. So here's what he says about the origin of life, how it came to be. This, let me just share a verse. We should consider the idea that space aliens <laughs> sent a rocket ship to the earth to seed it with spores to begin life. This guy won a prize. And I'm thinking, even if that was true and we had some evidence, where did the space aliens come from? Because they're not eternal. Let, let's take the problem or the question and let's put it on somebody else's desk, okay? And he's, there's this theory, and other scientists would hold to a similar theory of that happening. We say, no, that, that doesn't seem the most plausible. Well, then there's other people who say, well, you Christians, you're the silly ones. You believe in the supernatural. And we would say, as you look at the evidence, as you reason, we have, uh, uh, have been given a mind to reason the most logical explanation of the origin of our universe, the origin of life, is supernatural, because matter is not eternal. And that same supernatural God actually did another supernatural thing when he raised his son after dying on a cross on the third day. That is the biggest supernatural event in human history. And all of these, the plagues and all these other little miracles in Scripture, they're small potatoes compared to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So friends, the plagues, I take them that this was the hand of God, the power of God. Now notice the next kind of challenge though. God's going to lay his hand of judgment uh, uh, on, on the situation. And we ask the question, wait a second, what kind of God is it that judges? Because in the custom fit deities that we're inventing today, judgment is, is not a good thing. Like, who wants a God who judges? And it's really misunderstood. In Exodus, this book, there are two occasions where we, we get a revelation of God that is very significant. I mean, God, he reveals himself to you and to me all through scripture, but in Exodus 3 and Exodus 34, two key passages, if you want to know who God is, those are the passages. Let's go back to Genesis or Exodus 3, we were there before. Moses says, who should I say sent me? And God says, tell them, I am who I am has sent you. Uh, or you can take the short form, I am has sent you. And the Hebrew verb uh, for I am is to be. God is. Tell them God is sent you. The God who, who simply is, who's eternal, who is self-existent, who is unchangeable or immutable, that's God. But then in Exodus 34, we'll get there in just a little while, we get really God's profile picture on Facebook. This is, if you want to know who I am, and I'd just like to quickly read it for you, but he is the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to the thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty un. Punished. Two things about God. Number one, God is just. He cannot leave the guilty unpunished. And that's a good thing. You look at our world today, you look at our world today, uh, where do we start? 200 countries. Do you know how many people are being mistreated 
Maybe it's not on your news feed, but there are a lot of people being abused, killed, cheated. Uh, you know, we've got all these crises going on, opioid crises, all these things going on, and there's so much evil out there. A God who sits back and says, just luck of the draw, sorry about that. That's not a God who's just or loving. It's a good thing God is just. He has to punish the guilty. Nobody gets away with anything. But secondly, notice, God is gracious because he forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. So God is going to judge. And then lastly, why is he judging? Why these Ten Commandments? So that the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. That the Egyptians... Like the Israelites, they would see that any other God other than the God who is, is a false God, is not to be worshipped. And that this God who loves us more than anything, he, is, he alone is the true God. This is a reminder too that God doesn't just love Jewish people and, and the Israelites, he loves Egyptians, he loves, do we have any Dutch in here? He loves Dutch people, he loves Greek people, he loves Spanish people or Hispanic people. He loves us all. God, and here's what's amazing. God, he loves all people. He doesn't just love the oppressed. He loves the oppressor. I mean, come on, God. Come on. And as you look through Scripture, there's some pretty bad people who repented and said, I need God to save me. I've done something wrong. And God in his grace forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And just a reminder to us all, the Bible is not about good people and bad people. The Bible is about bad people. We're all in desperate need of a savior. Yes, we were born in the image of, made in the image of God and the pinnacle of his creation and beautifully and wonderfully made and we're good. But we fell, our sin, uh, that event happened, and we find ourselves broken, and we don't always do the best things. So God wants not just the Israelites to know, but the Egyptians. So, okay, let's look at the ten plagues again uh, in a very cursory manner. Number one, the Nile becomes blood. And God is going to systematically show the Egyptians and the Israelites that Happy, who was the god of the Nile, okay, he's not really the god of the Nile, okay, Verse, one of chap or verse 17 of chapter 7. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. So the staff is raised, Moses and Aaron, and the Nile turns to blood. Plague number two, the invasion of frogs. And this was... To counter Hecate, the frog goddess, she was the god of fertility. Seven days passed after, sorry, this is verse 25. Seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Again, notice that refrain. It's coming up again and again. God's not just um, rescuing the Israelites so they can worship new gods but to worship him. If you refuse to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs on your whole country. 
The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace and your bedroom and onto your bed, into the houses of your officials and on your people and into your ovens and kneading troughs. The frogs will come up on you and your people and all your officials. Staff is raised. Frogs are everywhere. God says, you think frogs are sacred? You like frogs? I'll give you frogs. It's interesting if you look at some of the Egyptians, uh, gods of the Egyptians and what they held sacred. Above the frogs uh, were crocodiles and cats. Could you, I was thinking to myself, if you refuse to let them go, I will send a plague of cats on you. (laughs) Now, I want to be careful with our cat lovers here. But even you, I think, you know, you're getting in your car and there's cats. You're trying to eat a meal and there's like cats. You're in the shower, there's cats, okay? God is mercy sent frogs, yeah. Interesting as you're reading through this, another challenge is it says that the uh, magicians, pharaohs, again, they had their own religion and, and um, the magicians, and there was a demonic power. And we're told that the magicians could mimic the first two miracles. They couldn't reverse them. First two plagues, they couldn't reverse them. But from mir- uh, plague number three on, they're powerless. So plague number three, the invasion of gnats. The Hebrew word, it means... Uh, it, it can also mean lice, fleas, ticks. And this God is going to show that Geb, God of the land, is, is a false god. Chapter 8, verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust to the ground. And throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. They did this. And when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust to the ground, gnats came on people and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. Can you imagine that? Some of you, anybody here, your kids uh, got lice at school, right? Did you guys call the National Guard? Okay, right. Can you imagine just lice everywhere or fleas everywhere? Okay. Plague number four, the swarm of flies. Again, the Hebrew word can also mean flies or mosquitoes. And this was the counter. Kept feed the god of insects. Chapter 8 and verse 20. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the river. Notice, as he goes to the river, why is he going to the Nile River? Doesn't tell us, but probably to bathe. Remember, his daughter was bathing there, to bathe. But secondly, to worship the God of the Nile, to venerate, happy, the God of the Nile. Uh, When he goes to the river, say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. If you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials, on your people, and into your house. Houses, the houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies. Even the ground will be covered with them. So we got the gnats coming, then the flies coming, uh, and then plague number five, the death of uh, livestock. This is uh, to counter Apis, the sacred bull god, and Hathor, the cow goddess. And by the way, Hathor, the cow goddess, a number of these gods uh, played a number of roles. So she wasn't just uh, the cow goddess. She had other roles that she played as well. Chapter 9, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go, can we all say it together? So that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them back, the hand of the Lord will bring a terrible plague on your livestock in the field, on your horses, donkeys, and camels, and on your cattle, sheep, and goats. And so we have livestock dying. And what is so interesting 
uh, sacred bulls. They were, their bulls were held as sacred and, and uh, a god. Uh, about 150 years ago, uh, 1856, uh, an archaeologist um, over in Egypt found, discovered a graveyard of sacred bulls. And there is a certain tunnel, I think it's somewhere near Cairo, so I don't know exactly where it is. It's, it's a sacred tunnel, this long tunnel, and alongside of it are these big granite caskets where sacred bulls were buried in. This is real. They were worshiping sacred bulls, and they're these big granite caskets. Uh, plague number six, boils on people and animals. This is Toth, the god of medicine. Chapter 9, verse 8, Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from a furnace and have Moses toss it into the air in the presence of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over the whole land of Egypt, and festering boils will break out on people and animals throughout the land. Notice the furnace there. They had high furnaces, high altars in the land, and at time, from times they would burn a human being to appease a god. And we don't just see it in Egypt. If you look at um, uh, the ancient world, a number of people uh, would sacrifice human beings to appease these many gods. And so uh, what, what they would do is they would burn uh, an individual, um, and then they, the soot they would take and throw it in the air to appease Toth, the god of medicine, with the hopes that they would be blessed with good health. And so God says, yeah, you actually take some of that soot and you throw it in the air. And so we find boils on people and animals. Plague number seven, the hailstorms. Uh, to counter Nut, the goddess of the sky, and Seth, the protector of crops. Uh, verse 22 of chapter 9, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky so that hail will fall all over Egypt on people and animals and on every growing, everything growing in the fields of Egypt. When Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hail and lightning flashed down to the ground. So the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt." And then plague eight, the swarm of locusts, or swarms of locusts. This was Onibus, the god of the fields. Chapter 10, verse 13. So Moses stretched out his staff over Egypt, and the Lord made an east wind blow across the land all that day and all that night. By morning, the wind had brought the locusts. They invaded all Egypt and settled down in every area of the, of the country in great numbers. So uh, what the hail uh, storms didn't destroy, uh, the locusts did. And then plague number nine, darkness. This is chapter 10, verse 21. And this is to counter Ra, the sun god. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt, darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. And back and forth, Moses and Aaron go to, to Pharaoh. No, they're not going. No. They're not going, oh, okay, yes, they can go. These plagues, some of them were so severe, you can go. But then he reneges on it. So back and forth, nine plagues. Then there's the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn. And it's to counter uh, the idea of Pharaoh being a deity. Uh, uh, in, uh, if you look at the different pharaohs in Egypt, many of them were considered an incarnation of a god. And... Uh, Pharaoh at this time was considered an incarnation of the sun god Ra, and then his firstborn son would have been considered deity as well. So the death of a son to the Egyptians would be the death of a god. 
Uh, so chapter 11, verse 4, we read, So Moses said, this is what the Lord says, About midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. And after this one, Pharaoh is forced to let the people go. And we'll pick up the story next week as they make their crossing across the Red Sea. Uh, just before we move on, again, all of this happening, we ask the question, is God a mad God, a cruel God? Like, what's going on here? Again and again and again, Pharaoh is warned, but his heart is stubborn, obstinate to the Lord and to the things of the Lord. Who's the Lord? that I should obey him. I don't know the Lord. And God, because he's just, has to judge sin. And enslaving and mistreating people and abusing people and people dying, God has to judge that. God takes no pleasure in judgment. But because he is a just God, he has to judge and he uses it so that not only Israelites but the Egyptians will turn to him the true God. Those people that came out of Israel, or out of Egypt, God would enter into a covenant with them at Sinai, that he would be their God and he would be their people. I took you out of Egypt so that you can worship me. You can follow me. You can serve me. I made you. I am for you. My ways are best for you. And so there in Mount Sinai, we'll get there in just a few weeks, but he gave them the Ten Commandments. Um, so uh, first one, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not worship any graven image. Thou shalt not take God's name in vain. These are the commandments of a God that loves us. Now, let's transition to our culture today, 3,500 years later was in a discussion this week just with some family, extended family, and like, how many kids would even know a couple of those commandments? Who is this Lord that we should obey him? We don't know the Lord. And those commandments are pushed aside. Can we go back to that back side there just for a sec? Those commandments are pushed aside. We don't want that God over us. We have our own gods. Now, we don't have uh, Ra or uh, Geb or uh, another god of the Egyptians, but we have different names. We have the god of pleasure, the god of power, the god of career, the god of money, the god of sex, all of these different gods. Now, money and career and all things are not bad, but when we are living for those things, that's what drives us, that's the purpose in life, that's a false God. And what is very interesting in the last probably 50, 60 years, oh, again, going back to the 60s, there's been this shift where one of the gods has risen to the top, a major god in our culture, and that is the god of self. And the god of self is not simply a trend, it really is a new religion. That you are God. It's got adherence. It's got prophets. It's got dogma, different dogma, creeds. It's got hymns, if you will. Little kids' song. 
Life is all about you. Nobody tells you what to do. You're, you're you. We've got kids' songs. We've got movies. It is everywhere. Every day, you and I, we're all in this land of many, many gods. The major god, the one above them all, is the god of self. An actress says it this way. My life, my rules, my dreams. My life, I choose who to be, so I'ma be me. I follow my own lead. That's the God of self. Nobody will tell me what to do. If you have a God, you, you follow Jesus or worship Jesus, please keep that to yourself because no one or anything is over me. And if you try to tell me about that God that I have to get right with that God, that's offensive to me. That's the God of self. Now, hold on. We're not cynical and saying, oh, my goodness. We're called to reach these people that are serving the God of self because apart from the grace of God, we too would be. Again, we're no better than anyone else. But there's people going through life believing that they are God, that no, they don't have to answer to anyone. Does that sound familiar to someone? It sounds familiar to Pharaoh. Who's the Lord that I'm going to obey him? I don't know him. But it's also, it goes back earlier in the story than that. There is a supernatural realm with someone we call the devil or Satan. And he comes to the first man and the first woman. And remember, he says, wait a second. God said you had to do this? Oh, no, no. You shouldn't obey God. He knows that when you disobey him and do your own thing, what's, what does he tell them? You will be like God. The God of self is not new. This worship is not new. Thaddeus uh, Williams has written a new book called Don't Follow Your Heart, The Ten Commandments of Self. So again, this is a new religion that your kids are being exposed to, we're all being exposed to. Let's quickly run through the Ten Commandments of Self. Thou shalt always act in accord with your chief end to glorify and enjoy yourself forever. Hashtag live your best life, right? The Westminster Catechism says uh, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, right? The purpose, the reason you're breathing right now is you're to live for God's glory and enjoy him forever. Or we could say you're to live for God's glory by enjoying him forever, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving your neighbor as yourself. You are representing God. You're loving God. That's the purpose of your life, right? It's been inverted. No. The purpose of your life is to glorify and enjoy yourself forever. Commandment number two, thou shalt never be outdated, but always on the edge uh, of the new and that's hashtag okay boomers. Anybody get that one? Like boomers, you guys are so irrelevant. <laughs> you guys just aren't hip. Okay, so yeah, you, again, we always got to be on with the new. Uh, commandment number three, thou shalt obey your emotions at all costs. Hashtag follow your heart. Right, emotions, we need, they're valuable. God's given us emotions. And we need to be aware of them, identify, but they don't drive us. But with self-worship, No. Whatever you feel, you have to do. Commandment number four, thou shalt be courageous enough to defy other people's expectations. Hashtag be true to yourself. Commandment number five, thou shalt live your truth and let others live theirs. Hashtag you do you. 
Uh, number six, thou shalt pursue the rush of boundary-free experience. Hashtag YOLO. Everybody YOLO? You only live once. Okay. Commandment number seven, thou shalt trust yourself, never letting anyone oppress you with the antiquated notion of being a sinner. Hashtag the answers are within. Do you know how many people believe that? The answers are within. Oh my goodness. Just my casual observation. What a pathetic state we're in. The answers are within. Uh, number eight, thou shalt invent and advertise thine own identity. Hashtag authentic. Uh, commandment number nine, thou shalt force the universe to bend to your desires. Hashtag live the dream. And then number 10, thou shalt celebrate all lifestyles and love lives as equally valid. Hashtag love is love. One day, Paul says, who saw the risen Christ, he said that every knee is going to bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, Yahweh, the true God, the living God, the only God, to the glory of God the Father. And all of the people that are worshiping gods other than that God, all of the gods will come crashing down. Right now, your children, if you have children, they're being exposed to somebody driving a fancy car. And there's a little beat going with the fancy car. And this guy is master of his fate, captain of his soul. He's got the good life. He knows what life is all about. That person. And that is coming to an end. And the person that is working out, like myself, uh, <laughs> with a nice beat and like, I've got, I'm, I'm in control, I've got it, coming down as well. Just a little reminder, you and I, we don't control anything. Apart from God, we aren't anything. And into this world, just like in Egypt, that with many gods, we're called to be a light. God rescues us out of our sin, not so we can live and follow the herd, but so that we can say, no, I am living for the God who is. The God who not only is a God of judgment, has to judge sin, but the God who is gracious and forgives sin. If you're here today and you're wondering, how can this be? Because God has to condemn sin, but yet God has to forgive wickedness, rebellion, and sin. How, how do the two work? They come together at the cross of Jesus Christ. God has to judge your sin, but he puts it on someone else, on Jesus. We just sang about the lamb. And because of that, he's a good God, and he forgives you. And if you're here and you know Jesus, that's in view. You're following the last God standing. But can I just say this to us as well at Woodside? We're called to, to represent Jesus as best we can to people that are following false gods, not simply because there's a day coming, when they'll meet the true God, but it's for their good. Thaddeus Williams, Thaddeus rather, Williams in his book talks about two recent studies, and again, this has to go with when God says he's for us, it means God wants the best for you and for me. That as we journey through life, the more we understand his commands and instructions and actually believe them and do them, it's good for our soul. So he refers to two studies. The first one has to do uh, with the research 
um, where they found that the more people seek happiness, the more miserable they are. Interesting. And they looked, these studies, at going back to the 1960s where there was this turn in culture where it was individualism. It was no longer community. It was about me. It was about my happiness. And they found the more that that message was put out there, my happiness, the less happy people became. Interesting. What explains that? Well, there's a second finding. The second finding in social research and studies is that we, and we know this now because uh, brain scans and different things, we are wired for awe. We're wired for, to, be, to marvel, to be amazed. And so we have, as we go through life, elicitors of awe. So you see um, the Grand Canyon. You uh, see a little newborn baby. You eat a chicken sandwich at Chick-fil-A, and you're just like, you're in awe, but all of those things, none of them are eternal. They're all pointing to the one who is eternal. So that awe is like, oh God, you are so great, but also you died on the cross for me. You are so good, and you're filled with awe. And they found from research, the more awe you have in your life, the more satisfyingly human you become. You want to be whole? You want your kids to be whole? Help them to be in awe of the God who is. And here's the problem. When I'm the God of self, when I'm the, my focus in life is all about me, I'm too small. I'm too small. And I'm not perfect. No matter how many times I look in the mirror, I'm not perfect. There's not a whole lot of awe there. And we've got people going through life looking at the God of self, and there's not much awe. And as a result, they're not happy. They're not satisfyingly human. Make no mistake, God will be the last God standing. He will judge sin, not just crime, cybercrime, not just bullying, cyberbullying, all sin, but that God calls out to all people. I'm showing my power so that you will come out of your sin and worship me. I'd like to close with this for the church family here at Woodside, for those watching online joining us. We are told by the writer of Hebrews to look out for one another so that none of us has an unbelieving, sinful heart, a stubborn heart, where we turn from the living God because of the deceitfulness of sin. So I just want to say Woodside, if someone, and not just the elders have this responsibility, but we all do, if someone is starting to drift from God and think that this matters ultimately in life or hockey matters or this matters, I've, I've been there, done that. Okay, parents, don't let hockey be first in your house. Don't let music be first. Don't let education be first, anything. Those are good things. But when we see someone going towards that, no. Somebody give a phone call. Somebody care. Somebody pray. I'm going to ask you if you would stand with me as we pray. I'm going to invite you to bow your head if you'd like. And today, we've been reminded that God has a purpose for his salvation, that he rescued you from sin. You will not be judged for your sin, but he rescued you so that you would worship and serve and follow the living God. And today, I'm going to just take a moment and ask you, would you talk to your God, the living God? Would you just recommit, if you will, your life to him?
and maybe you're here and you've been struggling in your walk, would you confess that to God? His mercy is more. Would you turn again to him again today? And then if you're here or watching online and you've never turned from your sin, from anything other than God, would you turn from that and turn to God? Would today you say, God, I desperately need you to save me from my sins. I surrender my life to you. Lord, I've been searching. I know there's something missing. And I give my life to you. Would you place your faith in Jesus Christ? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Help us, Lord, to respond to it even this week, that we would live for you, serve you, love you above anything else. And we pray this in your name. Amen.